Well, I do invite you to join me in looking at God's Word. We're looking at Jonah 1.17 through 2.10 this morning. As you recall from last week, Jonah is running from the Lord. The Lord has given him a directive to go to Nineveh, one of the capital cities of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were enemies of Israel. Uh, They were a a rising power. And in fact, in probably a hundred years or so, Assyria will capture the northern kingdom and send it into exile. But in the meantime, God has sent Jonah to these people, these enemies, to go and preach to them, and he does not want to do that, and he goes in the opposite direction. And there's a tempest and storm on the boat, uh, in the sea, as he's on the boat, and he's thrown overboard. And we pick up God's reading, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again, again, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and errant word to us this morning. Well, about 500 years ago, verse numbers were added to the Bible. The Old Testament scriptures had something like verse divisions created by Jewish scholars back in the 900s. And these were mostly adopted by Christian scholars during the Reformation in the 1500s when they went and put the verses in, verse numbers in, for easy reference. So the verses are not really all that important. They're not inspired and they're not uh, original for the text, but it's just a, a way for you to locate and find verses easily. Now, as I said before, the, the, the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scholars put their verse numbers in, and when the Christian scholars did uh, several hundred years later, they adopted most of the Hebrew numbering, but not all of it. Especially you'll see this in the Psalms. If you're looking at a Hebrew Bible, uh, the Psalms will be one verse off because they tended to take the ascriptions like a psalm of David and they made that verse one. In the Christian's version, 
They, didn't, they don't think those were inspired, so they just have that on there as Psalm of David, and that verse 1 would be the beginning of the psalm. Well, the text before us, Jonah 1.17, is one of those verses that is different in the Hebrew Bible. You'll notice if you have any type of Bible with a footnote, that notice that there is a footnote on chapter 1, verse 17 in your Bible that notes that it is actually chapter 2, verse 1 in the Hebrew text. So that's why today I'm beginning at verse 17. The Hebrew scholars, the Jewish scholars, felt that it should be a part of chapter 2, and, and I tend to agree with them. And there is certainly a change of scenery in chapter 1, verse 17. Verse 16 records the reaction the sailors had to the storm immediately ceasing once they threw Jonah overboard. And it says there in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, it's unlikely that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord on board the ship at that very moment. Hey, they'd thrown their cargo overboard. Uh, maybe they even threw animals overboard. But most likely, once they reached dry land, they would have gone to a shrine to Yahweh or perhaps even traveled to Jerusalem to the temple to offer their sacrifice and make vows to the Lord. But verse 16, however we understand it, is the conclusion to the scene of chapter 1. And we learn what happened to the sailors, possibly in the ensuing days after the storm and their experience with Jonah. And then they're, they're gone. They exit the story. We hear no more about them. Verse 17 returns our attention to the plight of Jonah. We might even translate verse 17 in this way. Meanwhile, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It's kind of like that great catchphrase, meanwhile, back at the ranch. You know, it's a signal that there's a new scene. And that's what's going on here. Jonah, where our attention is turned from the sailors to Jonah. Well, verse 17 is very important. We should be very thankful that it is there. If we stop the story at verse 16, we would assume that Jonah was dead. When the sailors picked him up and threw him overboard, surely Jonah thought he was going to die. Think about the last thing that happened to Jonah before he is swallowed up by that fish. Put yourself in his shoes. The lot falls to him as the sailors are trying to figure out on whose account this storm is being hurled at them. Uh, it is confirmed that he's the guilty party. He is exposed. He tells the sailors his story, and he says, you must throw me overboard for the storm to cease. The sailors don't want to throw him overboard, so they row all the harder trying to get to dry land, but God makes the tempest even stronger. And then he hears the prayer that the sailors make in verse 14, which is really an indictment of Jonah. They pray, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord have done as it has pleased you. It's not their choice. It is God's choice that Jonah be thrown overboard. And how those words must have stung Jonah. God has decided his fate. Jonah would have certainly believed that he had been given a well-deserved death sentence by the God whom he disobeyed, from whom 
he was fleeing. And once they hurled him overboard, he certainly thought that this would be the end. Death was certain. And he describes what happened as he plummeted to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea in in his prayer in chapter 2. Look at verse 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. As he sank down, he certainly thought this was the end. All hope seemed lost for Jonah as he sank down ever further to the bottom of the sea. Well, if the book of Jonah was only one chapter long, if he did indeed die at that point, the lesson would be, don't disobey God or he will destroy you. But, of course, the story does not end there. Jonah does not die. Verse 17 happens. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah is miraculously saved. That's why we should be thankful for verse 17. See, the lesson is not don't disobey God or he's going to get you, he'll he'll destroy you. The lesson of Jonah is that God is overflowing with compassion and mercy to the worst of sinners. Jonah's being taught a lesson, one that he's going to continue to struggle to grasp as we press forward in the coming weeks. While he's in the belly of the fish... Jonah is overflowing with joy and gratitude. And he composes a psalm. This is actually a psalm here in chapter 2. A psalm of thanksgiving and praise. Jonah's prayer is not a request to be saved from the fish, but it is thanksgiving for being saved by the fish. A miraculous salvation. Let's look at it in detail for a few moments. Give you a little bit of a running commentary Verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Now, Sheol is the grave or the place of the dead. Nothing specific. It's a general term for for death. Sometimes it refers to hell. Sometimes it just refers to being dead. And that's what it refers to here. He was as good as dead. He was right in the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Look at verse 4. I mean, not verse 4. Look at verse uh, 6. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So he was convinced that he was going to die. And so he's going down, sinking down, cast into the deep, the waves and the billows passing over him. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look, again, look upon your holy temple. Now, in the Hebrew, that, that little preposition, upon, is usually not translated as upon. And if you have another translation, such as the King James Version or the New American Standard Version or the, the New International Version, all of these versions translate it as, as it is normally. And I'm not sure why they, the ESV translated it this way. But the, the preposition is toward or to. So, really, I think it would be better to translate it, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look toward your holy temple. Toward your holy temple. And that makes it consistent with what we see in verse 7. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You see, in the Old Testament era, God's presence was localized at the temple. You remember when Solomon built the temple, and uh, they dedicated it, and God's glory filled the temple, his Shekinah glory. And they all rejoiced there. So in the Old Testament era, they could look at that temple and say, that's where God lives, in that house. So the Old Testament talks about praying towards the temple. Daniel, I've been reading through Daniel in my daily Bible reading, and, and Daniel was, you know, they forbade anybody to pray to any other god. But Daniel turned towards Jerusalem several times a day and continued to pray. He was praying to his God where God was living. And that's what he's referring to. So in verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look toward your holy temple. He was in this desperate situation where he thought he was about to die, and he remembered the Lord, and he cried out to the Lord. That's what he's saying here. He's testifying to the fact that he called upon the Lord, and the Lord saved him. And this is the lesson I want us to really learn from this, is that even if you are running from God, even if you have, are going in the opposite direction of the way God wants you to go, even if you have made an absolute mess of your life, call upon God. Cry out to Him. He Don't despair that you have completely messed up and, and God has rejected you. See, Jonah probably thought that when he was sinking down to the bottom of the sea. But God saved him. He cried out to the Lord and God saved him miraculously. Don't hesitate to cry out to the Lord even in the direst circumstances. Why? Verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with a voice of thanksgiving I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So there's two things here I want us to see. Why? Two reasons why we should always cry out to the Lord. First of all, you should cry out to God because of His steadfast love. And then secondly, you should cry out to God because salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, as Jonah proclaims. Well, first, you should cry out to God because of His steadfast love. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The word vain idols can be translated empty nothingness. An idol, the word idol is nothingness in the Hebrew. It's nothing. It's, a, it's made out of wood or stone. It could be an idol of the heart or anything else, anything that we put in place of God. Empty nothingness. They're not living. They can't do anything for you, and they certainly cannot give you steadfast love. But God, on the other hand, is full of steadfast love. Jonah is saying if you pay regard to vain idols, <clears throat> this empty nothingness, you're not going to get any steadfast love from that. You're not going to get any steadfast love from the things other than God that you depend upon. Only in God can steadfast love be found. If you pay regard to vain idols, you 
you forsake your hope of steadfast love. Now that word steadfast love is a wonderful, wonderful word. It's a word that's translated several ways in the Old Testament. But the word is chesed in the Hebrew. And it means something like uh, covenant love or covenant mercy. Or you might say loyal love. It's, it's, it's the, the, all that you get from God because of his promise, because of his covenant that he makes with his people, because of the bond that he has with his people. You'll, because of that bond, you'll always get from God love, mercy, kindness, loving kindness. These are the ways that that word is translated throughout Scripture. Grace, loyalty. There's a wonderful verse in Lamentations 3. The steadfast love, the hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, the, the, he's marrying up steadfast love. Great is your faithfulness. God is always faithful, always merciful, always loving, always kind. And we see that steadfast love on display for us here in the life of Jonah. Jonah is running from God. He's disobeying God. But God is pursuing him. He's chasing him down. You see it in chapter 1. He hurls the tempest like a javelin at Jonah. Jonah affirms in verse 3, You cast me into the deep. Your waves and your billows passed over me. And look how God is orchestrating the whole thing. Verse 17, The Lord appointed or ordained a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It was by his command, his ordination, that he set this fish apart. He prepared a fish to rescue Jonah. And then verse 10 of chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah had punched a one-way ticket to Tarshish and God purchased the return ticket back. That's the steadfast love of the Lord on display, His covenant mercy. That's the God that is calling upon us, pursuing us that w- with His steadfast love. He's demonstrated it by sending His only Son to earth to come on a rescue mission. His Son who lived and died and rose from the dead to save us. God's steadfast love. So no matter what kind of mess you're in, cry out to the Lord. Because secondly, salvation belongs to the Lord. You should cry out to God because salvation belongs to the Lord. Only God can ordain a fish to come swallow a guy to save him from himself. It's miraculous, and I believe it is true. I don't believe this is just a fairy tale or a fable. I believe it's true, and Jesus, I believe, believed it was true. You remember I read this verse last week, but I'll read it again. Matthew 12, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You see, Jesus affirms this as if it were a fact, true. He thought of it as history. And he says that the judgment day, these men of Nineveh who repented are going to rise up and condemn that generation because they ignored Jesus. They rejected Jesus. And notice that Jesus uh, equates the men of Nineveh with the queen of the south who came to, to, seek, to seek out Solomon and hear all of, about his wisdom, just as historical, both of them. So Jesus looked at it as history. It's certainly miraculous. How can you explain a, a large fish swallowing a man? But how can you explain anything? A man rising from the dead. That's what Jonah points to, that great salvation, that miraculous salvation that God provides. Salvation can only come from him. When Peter healed a blind man at the temple uh, in the name of Christ, you know, the people came to accuse him and talk to him and Peter affirmed, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And our salvation is miraculous. We, we need a miraculous salvation. We cannot, in our own strength and power, save ourselves. We need something miraculous to happen. We need a perfect sacrifice to be made for our sins and that's what Christ was and and only God can do it because only God can be perfect and Jesus was God perfect and we need someone to rise from the dead to conquer death and Jesus did that he rose from the grave Jonah's death was was metaphorical he went into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, kind of down to the bottom of the sea, and then it, it, the fish spit him back out on the dry land. He didn't actually die, but Jesus did. He died. He was, in the, he was buried for three days, and then he was free. He was out. He was alive, and he is still alive at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us pursuing us through circumstances of life. It's no mistake that you're here today. It's no mistake that you're listening on the live stream. You need to hear this message. Jesus is calling. John, uh, Jonah surely thought that he was forsaken by God. He certainly deserved to be because of his rebellion against God's command and because he fled the presence of the Lord. But he was not forsaken. Quite the opposite. God pursued him. God woke him up from his sinful slumber 
And we too deserve to be forsaken by God. But we're not because Jesus was forsaken by his Father in our place on the cross. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he was forsaken, he was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was forsaken by God in our place on the cross so that we might not ever be forsaken if we put our trust in him. Cry out to him. No matter where you are in life, cry out to the Lord. Rest in his steadfast love and in the salvation that only he can provide. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that encourages us. We thank you for the, the example that Jonah gave to us with all of its warts, how he was so transparent to share these things that, that, that don't look good. But Lord, we know in our heart of hearts that we don't look good either. We're sinners. We need your salvation. Thank you for not forsaking us. Lord, we pray that you would remember us, that we would remember you, and that you would help us as we cry out to you, Lord, save us, have mercy upon us. And Lord, fill our mouths like you did, Jonah, with, with thanksgiving and praise and with obedience. He went. He preached. And people repented. Thank you, Lord, for his life, and we pray, Lord, that we would mirror that, that we would experience your steadfast love and your salvation today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.